I'm Ken Hemmings, and he is Chris Lang, and welcome to another of these regular property briefings. Again, a warm welcome to you, Chris. Thanks, Ken. And is there anything in particular you'd like to cover today? Well, I was thinking that over the past few weeks, we've explored a number of key topics. And yet, I thought it might be worthwhile if we were to pause and revisit some of the underlying principles of investing in commercial property. So, where should our listeners begin? Hmm, where to begin? Well, probably if we go back to 2008, when we had the start of the financial crisis, and around Australia, a number of the commercial markets went into freefall, particularly Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, Darwin and Canberra. Not so much in Sydney, although that was affected, and probably the best one coming through that was Melbourne. But there was, there's an old joke in commercial real estate. If you think nobody cares whether you're dead or alive, just try missing a few mortgage payments. And for a lot of people, that was the case. They were put under a hell of a lot of pressure. Now, the residential market fell a lot more than the commercial market. But those that were not over-borrowed, they held their property. There was no reason for selling it. And in fact, the smart investors actually took advantage of these, the market down and the prices being lower to actually secure what were genuine investment opportunities. There was nothing wrong with the properties. It was just that the owners of the properties found themselves caught, the loan to valuation ratios got too high, the banks were, were indicating they wanted them to realise some cash to, and they were you know, selling some properties but not others, probably looking at the most saleable properties. And therefore, those that actually came on the market were good quality properties and quite many cases led to good tenants. And it was just that the owners of the properties weren't able to hold them and that's what affected the market. So, you know, from a commercial point of view, I mean, the reason commercial investors prefer commercial property is that you've got a, a larger cash flow. I mean, your yields are 65 to 8.5% as opposed to 3 to 3.5% on a net basis with residential. You've got much better economies of scale. In other words, you don't have to buy a whole lot of apartments because it's unlikely you're going to buy a block of apartments, so you have to buy individual ones. Whereas with commercial, you can you can buy a, a small office suite, but you can equally buy an office building if you've got the um, capability of doing that. It's a, a relatively open playing field. There's generally an abundant and good market for affordable property. You get a good selection of property managers, which are uh, at a lower cost than for residential. And generally, your, your payoff at the end is much greater for commercial real estate. So, you know, that just gives you a, an idea of, of an introduction, if you like, to where to start with and why to start with commercial property. That said, 
I imagine you also need some sort of overall strategy. Yeah, you do need a plan, there's no question. And it's the ability to evaluate the best properties and how to separate the good deals from the bad. And and as you said, that starts with having a good blueprint. Probably the first thing is that you need to learn what the insiders already know. In other words, if you want to be a serious player with commercial property, you need to think like a professional. You need to know that commercial property is valued differently from residential property. I mean, residential property, whether it has a tenant or not a tenant, it still holds its value, whereas it's the income generated by commercial property that establishes its value. And you also need to understand that the that income is related to its usable area, its net lettable area of whatever square metres it is. So the larger it is, the more rented commands, therefore the more value. It's not necessarily the case with residential. Larger properties, poorly designed, don't necessarily command a higher price because people particularly with rental properties, tend to rent rooms rather than total area of the apartment involved. So, you know, it's things like that and and knowing that commercial leases are generally longer than residential leases. I mean, commercial leases are normally, depending on the size, three to five years for a larger tenant, maybe eight to ten, whereas residential is generally six to 12 months, so you've got a higher turnover. So it's understanding all these things. That's one of the the first places to start. But yes, you do have to map out a plan of action. You've got to look at how much you can afford to pay, how much you expect to make on the deal, who are the key players involved, how many tenants are already on board paying rent, and some cases, depending on the size of the property, how much space is vacant and you need to fill it over a over a period of time. But it's being un- able to recognise and appreciate a good deal. I mean, most established commercial investors know a good deal when they see one. And the secret is that you start with the end in mind. In other words, when you purchase a property you need to have an exit strategy and you need to know that where and how you're going to walk away from the deal. And when you're looking at and assessing properties, you want to look for one that has either a hidden opportunity or uh, impediment, not from a structural point of view, but there may it may be uncared for and requires repairs, but you have a good team that can go in and do that quickly. You need to be able to assess the risk and be able to also, with using financial programs or calculator or software, do a very quick assessment, having decided it ought to be on your shortlist, as to whether financially this property or that property is, is a better deal. And for clients, I make the financial judgment software available, which very quickly can distill 18 different components down into an after-tax cash flow and therefore show you immediately what your projected 
return on the equity you invest is likely to look like. So these are the sort of things that I think you need to have as part of your overall plan. And I guess you also need to understand the metrics involved to help you analysing whether or not it's a good deal. Yeah, there are a number of metrics, and and as I explained, that software gives you the ultimate decision. But before you get there, there's some quick calculations that that you can make, and the sort of the key metrics or KPIs are things like net operating income, and that's the calculation of the property's first year's gross operating income, and then subtract the operating expenses for the first year. Now, with commercial property, in most leases, we'll require the tenant to pay the outgoings. There may, however, be some outgoings that you as the landlord have to take on board. I mean, for example, depending how the lease is structured, you may have to pay the management fee, and therefore that comes off whatever rent you get so if you, if, you th- if the lease is a net rent, it becomes a net-net rent and therefore that is your net operating income. So again, that's a point of comparison. And then you, you have the, the capitalisation rate or the cap rate and that's used, used to calculate the value of income-producing properties. And the, the cap rate is is shorthand way of of estimating the net present value of future profits or cash flow. In other words, it's called the capitalisation of earnings. So you divide the cap rate for that type of property into the net operating income, and that provides a capital value, an estimated capital value for you to compare like with like or smaller properties with larger properties. So that's another metric that you use. If you're going to borrow, most people are, one of the common things is called a cash-on-cash ratio. And and this is where, when you're relying on finance, you compare the first year's performance of competing properties. And, And what it does, it takes into account the fact that you as an investor will not be keeping all of your net operating income because you need to make some of the use some of it for, to make mortgage payments so in other words you you get your net operating income and that's relating to the property but then you subtract from that your other costs relating to your mortgage when whether it might be interest only mortgage or it might be if you have one where you're repaying capital as well. But it's the residual cash after you having made all payments related to the property and financing of the property. And that again gives you a another metric, another measurement that you can have to make a quick comparison between properties. So, I mean, one property may be generating, generating a large net operating income but by the time you take financing costs and some other related costs involved, it reduces down to a small residual cash balance. So that may be discarded for that reason. So as I said, there's no 
one measure. You have to, it's like with investing in shares, I suppose. You have different yardsticks and tests that you put the shares through to decide whether or not you're going to see it as a, a good long-term investment. And the same is with property. So net operating income, the cap rate and cash on cash are probably the three. And then ultimately when you've decided the property's worth looking at, that's when you do your, your three or four-year projected cash flow and distill it down into your one figure, the internal rate of return on an after-tax basis relative to the actual equity that you're investing into the property. Probably the most important question is, how do you source properties worth considering? Well, basically you've got three avenues. Firstly, the internet, which I think everyone uses. You've got classified ads, the traditional, and then actually engaging someone to act on your behalf to identify and help you package the deal. So it's a a three-pronged approach. Now, ultimately, what you're looking for are motivated sellers. Now, some sellers are motivated at the point the property goes onto the market. Other sellers do not become motivated until the property has been on the market. They've suddenly realised their expectations were way above market and now they understand that the property has become stale because it's been on the market for three or four months and they suddenly become very realistic. Now, there's again, there's nothing wrong with the property. Uh, you have to understand that but you, and that's through some of the things we've already discussed and proper analysis and knowledge of the market but the vendor is educated now and has become highly motivated so what you're looking to do is to identify these opportunities either through your your own activities and and your own research or by using the skills and knowledge and background of of someone who can help you identify that. And one of the things that I use when I'm helping my clients is having this network of, of agents who are close to the deals when I say close to the deals, I'm talking about where properties might have been vacant, they've just been leased, the offer to lease has been made by the tenant, accepted by the landlord, and the deposit has been paid. So it's effectively a binding transaction. The only thing missing is the lease hasn't yet been executed. So there is a, a lead time, or, or, or a, sorry, a, a, a window between offer to lease and execution of the formal lease. And sometimes, depending on the speed of the solicitor, that can be anywhere from 10 days to four weeks. And that's the time that I want to find out about the property because at that point, the agent can't legally go to the market publicly. However, that doesn't stop him or her letting me know the details of the offer to lease. and 
if the property is suitable, and the beauty is you're you're starting at the beginning of the lease rather than, than you know, it's already all saying you've got a five year lease and you come in three years into the lease, you've only got two years to run. So what I'm interested in is getting in at the very beginning. So you've got to depending on the size of property, at least a three year lease, ideally a five or a six year lease, so that you can conclude a deal and finalise something subject to the ultimate formal lease being executed. So at that point, if the purpose of the the vendor was to sell as soon as they have leased the property, what they don't want to do is to have the property sitting around any longer than it need be there. However, they're aware that there is this, this time gap so if the agent can go back to the vendor and say, well, look, good news, we've leased the property, but we've also now found you a buyer and you won't have to expend the advertising, which could be, depending on the size of it, anywhere from five to $20,000 in, in advertising to actually market the property. We can do that deal now and that means not only do you not have to expend the money, you don't have to expend the time because generally the advertising is three or four weeks and then the settlement after that. So you've saved the the owner or the the, the, the vendor has saved themselves either the cost of advertising and be at least a month in the marketing period. So there's a, a considerable saving there which will more often than not be reflected in the price. But the vendor also knows, well, look, you've got someone on the hook. We better not muck around. He knows as soon as the lease is executed, the deal becomes fully binding. So let's go ahead and do it. So that's what I, I, I tend to try and do. Rather than anticipate a buyer might be motivated simply because they put it on the market. So that's probably the best way, I would say, of, of finding out which properties are available and how motivated the vendor is. Anything further you'd like to add? Well, the only thing I think that I could add is that the success, your long-term success as a commercial property investor is very much related to the relationships you build up. And those relationships... Uh, twofold. One is from the buying side and if you're going to do it yourself you need to build up a relationship with a number of selling agents so that they will give you early look at that, those sort of properties. Or in the case with my clients, they tap into my relationship with a, a network of agents who they know that they can confidentially give me details of, of a property which I won't share with anyone unless that person is serious about buying the property. So I make the initial judgment whether it's worthwhile and then, again, on a confidential basis, I share the, that early information with my clients. But I think also having bought the property, it's having a relationship with your tenant. And I don't mean in a social sense. I mean in a seeing them as your partner in this deal. I mean, they are effectively through paying their rent, paying your mortgage. 
So while you may not ever meet the tenant, your instructions to your managing agent are to be that that tenant is to be treated with kid gloves. If they need something, you respond. If there's work to be done, even if they're ultimately paying for it, you need to organise the tradespeople quickly. And then probably a third one, I hadn't thought of that, is the payment of the tradespeople promptly. Because I know some landlords want to, yes, you've collected the money from the tenant and yes, it's there, but you want to hold off till the very last moment before you pay the tradesperson. My view is if you've got the money, pay the tradesperson and pay them before they're expecting to be paid. Because at some time during your ownership as an investor, you're going to have a major emergency, you're going to need tradespeople, and you want to know that the tradespeople hold you in high regard as as a good payer, good client, and therefore when there's a real emergency, they will respond quickly. So just... As I said, summing up, it's a, it's a relationship business and whether you do it uh, by proxy through a managing agent or a, someone acting for you to buy the properties, it's making sure that you have those relationships in place. I realise we may have gone over a few things covered in earlier podcasts, but I just thought it would be useful to do you know, a quick recap. Oh, no, Ken. I think it was a great idea. And um, I look forward to catching up with you again next week.